Hello and welcome to the Ham and Hyde podcast. I'm Andre Longley. We're back after a COVID-enforced break and this week our guest is comedian and author Arabella Weir. Arabella is known for her comedy work such as In the Fast Show and Posh Nosh and her books including the international bestseller Does My Bum Look Big in This? Here she is, the fantastic Arabella Weir. So, Arabella, welcome to the Ham and Hyde podcast. Thanks for joining us today. My great pleasure, Andre. Um, and you're with us because you've got strong historic connections to the area and uh, current connections. You spent quite a lot of time in Camden um, and now you live in Crouch End. I do. My, um, my dad was a, uh, a diplomat from very humble uh, Fife backgrounds, but he became a diplomat. So we didn't really live in Britain until um, I was about seven, eight. And we lived in various different flats, uh, all in South London, because, uh, you know, people, well, that was the foreign office was in Whitehall, still is. And that's what people did. But then my dad found a house in Camden Square in an auction, which was at the time, the Greek Cypriot school run by Bishop Makarios. Because uh, as I'm sure you know, well, you're probably a bit young, Camden Town was uh, mainly Greeks and Irish or Greek Cypriots. And um, so dad bought this very beautiful house very cheaply in an auction. And so my, I would say the other, and then I went to Camden School for Girls across the road. And I would say that not only did I love my school years and find my best friends there, but it was a time of enormous turmoil in my family and my parents broke up and my mother was not very stable or very happy. So the area has always meant a huge amount to me because it's where I made my friendships and where my surrogate family, who were in England's Lane, where I spent a lot of time in Chalcott Gardens, now beyond the reach of anybody I could ever know, uh, but then seemed like a reasonably nice, but normal-ish place to live, just as Camden Square did. Um, so I would consider myself very, very rooted in Belsize Park, Camden Square, Camden Town. It's absolutely, I mean, I love Crouch End where I live now, but when I was looking for a house of my own, uh, rather amusingly, uh, Crouch End was the closest to Camden Town that I could afford. Um, and again, I wouldn't be able to afford it like most people. I couldn't afford to buy my house again now. Uh, but I remember That's crouching. That's of where London's going, isn't it? Well, who knows after this fantastic pandemic that's being so beautifully handled. But yes, uh, Camden, uh, Camden, the borough of Camden um, and North London is very much my where my heart is. So you, you said um, your surrogate family, you're talking about that where, that's where friends were. Uh, I had a very close set of uh, friends who were three brothers and their dad lived in, his, their parents were split up, but their dad lived in Charcot Gardens and I spent a lot of time there. Um, he was a film director and later became a theatre director called Carol Rice and he was on the penultimate kinder transport. Oh, wow. um, so if it hadn't been for Nicholas Winton, I'd never have known him either. Uh, but they very much took me in. Um, I mean, I wasn't estranged from my mother, but I spent most of my time at Chalcott Gardens when I was sort of 12 plus, which is when I met them. And uh, yes, it all it all uh, means a great deal to me. 
but of course I go past those houses now and think, blimey, kind of billionaires live in those houses now. Mm. Um, but as you say, it's the way London's gone. What were you like at school or how, how did you find school? Were you hard working? I was very, very living? badly behaved. Really? Um, as I say, there was a lot of family turmoil uh, when I started Camden. So a school for girls. And the thing I realized as soon as I got there was two incredibly life-changing things, which was one, this was the first school I was never, I wasn't gonna leave because my parents had split up. So I wasn't gonna be here for two years and then dad was moving countries and then I'd go to another one. And that I was funny. Um, so I realized, I mean, almost, yeah, definitely within the first week that I could be funny or swatty and I went for funny. And mercifully it's paid off, but it took a long time and it was at the cost of quite a few teachers um, sanity, which I'm not saying I'm proud of now, but no, I absolutely loved Camden, but I'd probably be kicked out of a normal school now. I, I, was bet, very a lot of those, I bet a lot of those teachers brag about it now though. I really doubt it. Oh, really? I went that to a reunion and one of them who's since died said to me, I'm sorry, I'm so old, I, I don't recognise you, I can't remember your name. And I said, I'm actually, I'd like to apologise to you. I was very, very badly behaved in your class. My name is Arabella Weir. And she said, oh my days, the worst <laughs> pupil I ever had the misfortune to teach. <laughs> I still felt at whatever I was at the time, 38, thinking, oh, that's quite a badge. Quite yeah. pleased with that. That's quite an achievement. And yeah, I'm sure there's- It wouldn't be true of... now. Camden's <laughs> girls, I'm sure. No, this is true. And that's quite interesting that you kind of made a, 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 to some degree, a binary choice at that point. It was, oh, actually, I'm going to go for entertaining people because that's my calling. My parents were very high achievers, both Oxford. Uh, they were also unbelievably competitive. Now, my dad, you know, was a primary school teacher's son from Dunfermline. So no doubt if he hadn't been that competitive, he may not have achieved in the way, because he was not public school, you know, in the way that uh, people who joined the foreign office always were in those days. Um, but um, so as soon as I started school, I thought, well, I'm never gonna be one of the people that get a kind of, what do they call it? An exhibition. Uh, you know, I'm, there's no, I'm not even interested in academia, never mind. I'm not going to get in, but I do seem to be quite good at this. And I think what I remember feeling, which is a bit alarming, was that I was fearless. And I think if you're doing comedy, you certainly, I just wasn't nothing. No teacher going, I'm going to speak to the headmistress. You're going to be suspended. I was suspended a few times. Ne it never mattered to me. I had none of the fear that you need to have to do well academically because it just didn't matter to me what mattered to me was that I was popular that everybody at school knew my name that everyone thought I was funny that people would wait for me to react to a new teacher you know that I could hold court that's all that mattered to me I mean I'd have been devastated if they'd actually kicked me out but of course they weren't going to because it wasn't that kind of school of course you didn't have that fear that might might work for an academic future but you had the fearlessness which no doubt was essential to 
making sure you were never ignored in um in show business well probably we'll yeah we'll move on to sorry the comedy direction in a minute but just quickly so was it while you're at school that you're in a band is that right yes i was in a band called bazooka joe you have done your research andre i was 15 when i joined that band and the boys were all 17 and 18 and they were all north london again they were all at hornsey art school as it was then and or hornsey school of art as it was called and they wanted a girl singer. So I joined this band called Bazooka Joe. And the reason you know about it is because one of our many, but our last bass player was somebody called Stuart Goddard, who then changed his name to Adamant. And the rest is pop history, but not with me, because I did not join Adamant. It certainly is. But it also, it, it again, ties in with your fearlessness, because he was in some, to some degree involved in the punk movement which was, you know, part of being fearless, not caring what people think and doing what you wanted. Did you, did you feel part of that movement? Was the punk No, I thought movement? they were terrible. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think Adam was terrible because he hadn't started his band then, but our last ever gig was at St. Martin's School of Art and we were supported by a band playing for the first time who were so bad, they were booed off and it was just a terrible noise. And that was um, the Sex Pistols. They were playing their first ever gig and they just... You know, they had no idea what they were doing. They were just angry and making a lot of noise, which I realise I now know, um, <laughs> you know hit a nerve with a huge amount of people. And I can see why it did. But to me, it was just like, oh, my God, why would anybody like this music? Because I like to tune and I still like a tune. Um, to be fair, to be so, fair yeah. they only produced one record, didn't they? So you vindicated to some degree. <laughs> they didn't last. Yeah, they were legends for <laughs> other reasons. Well, this is true, yeah. Um, so, so that was um, a, a chapter, I guess, in your life. But were you looking at the st- other stuff on stage at the same time? Uh, no, I knew I wanted to be an actress. I mean, looking back, I probably just knew I wanted to be a show-off um, because it wasn't that I was had a yearning to, I must deliver Shakespeare for the nation, you know, wait till they see my check-off. I didn't think of it like that. I just thought I crave being able to entertain people. Um, so, and I, I mean, I did enjoy that. So it's a bit, a bit more developed than just being a show off, but yeah, I definitely thought I want to be on stage. I want people to notice me. I want to do, I knew I was naturally funny. I knew I had a natural wit and yeah. So I, but by, at that time, there was absolutely no idea of, I mean, there were barely women in comedy at all. There was Marty Kane. America was better at it because, of course, they'd had women on vaudeville, but there weren't really. My dad had been posted, as they call it, to New York. If you if if you don't know diplomat speak, it sounds like her dad was posted. Um, he was posted to New York, and when I was thirteen, I discovered B- Bette Midler. Um, she was really more of a singer then, but she'd do funny bits in between, and I thought, oh, I'd like to do that. Um, but I wasn't really very focused. It's but taken what, what- a long time to get focused. So what kind of roles were you getting or doing? Well, I went to drama school, which is, it was then called New End, and it had been started by some women that started Central School of Speech and Drama, and then they'd broken off, and it was not a very good drama school. Um, Or it certainly wasn't very prestigious, But and now it's part of Middlesex University. Uh, And then I left there, and I was just, I was happy to do whatever I could get. Um, and my first job was screaming my head off at the end of a Barry Humphreys sketch before he was doing Edna Everidge. 
Uh, so in the first half, he was touring. It was called A Night with Dame Edna. In the first half, he'd do two characters, um, one of whom was Sandy Stone, deceased. And he was a ghost who would ha uh, haunt his wife. And to punctuate the scene, the wife was asleep in the bed. And to punctuate the scene, she'd jump up and scream her head off. That was my first job. And then in the second half, I had to hand Barry the um, gladdies from offstage. <laughs> Uh, and trust me, I never want to see a Gladi again, as long as I live. Uh, so, but that was a, like, 10-week tour. But he was very, very kind to me, and I learned a lot. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about um, opportunities for women in, in the arts and theatre, but your first role was sc Screaming Woman in a ghost sketch and in a tour where the lead woman was played by a man. Yes, actually, I never thought of that. Yes, that's a very good point. But to be fair, it was a one, it was a solo show. So who else was going to play it? Well, no, fair enough. I think the punters would have been disappointed if somebody else had played David. Yeah, so wait, wait a minute, no. I'll come see Barry Humphreys do Edna Everidge, <laughs> not somebody else. Yeah. So, um, and what, what, what other roles? Were you doing serious roles as well? Or were you looking for... I, I was thinking about this the other day. Andre, you know, I'm absolutely sure some of them are out there who go, no, I was very clear. I wanted to do stage. And then I, but the idea that I've had anything other than utter and complete desperation. So I would, I would just go, you know, whatever there is, because there was no, that was my only way of earning money. Although I did start temping quite early on into my career because there was no way of earning money. I just remember being desperate to be cast. So I, it never occurred to me that, oh, I won't go for that because, you know, they're doing Shakespeare and I'm not interested in that. It, it was always a bit like my approach to boys. It was always, if they like me, I'll say yes, not. I had no agency in it. You know, if mm. they like me, I'll say yes. I mean, that's very true of an actor's life. Uh, I was going to say that's not unusual, is it? That's No. You take whatever roles are And I, I've got a very close actor friend who I've always admired because he's always said, well, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. But then he's had very little rejection, right? But, you know, I would be rejected, well, nine times out of ten. I thought you were um, going to say that he's an excellent waiter. <laughs> he's a really good waiter. Uh, no, I think the, just like with boys, the ability to know what you want comes is very hard to decipher if you're in a feeding frenzy you know to go well I won't go for that I mean I haven't worked for six months and I I'm really hating the temping but I just don't think I'm interested in doing Shakespeare in you know theatre fluid uh, you're just going how much do they pay thank god they want me um yeah. I mean I I would say I was pretty crap at deciding what I want now uh, never mind, you know, and now I've got sort of a certain amount of agency, as I like to say. Very pleased yeah. with that word. You've, you've certainly got, um, well, you've certainly got a, a good, a great back catalogue and um, agency and, and reputation. But of course, we're, we're back in a situation where um, where pickings are slim, aren't they? So, so. Um, well, the only thing that's good about the pandemic, and I don't mean it's good, but what I mean is at least everyone's in the same, you know, hmm. uh, I was talking to a friend who's going to be huge, Kieran Hodgson, but much younger than me. And uh, he said, it's the relief of not going, but wait a minute, you mean they're doing that? I mean, how come, what, I mean, what do you mean? Why didn't I hear about everyone's going, practically nothing's happening. And a few people, 
have sort of managed to make it work for them a little bit, but pretty much everyone's in the same boat and you just sort of think, um, but you know, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I'm not 20 years old and starting out right now, I have to say. And this is in a pretty poor way, isn't it right now? It is. The, 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 the kind of, the, the lack of jealousy opportunities, it's a bit similar to what a lot of us have experienced in, in the relief in not having fear of missing out for a little while the kind of reset of being able to go, actually, I don't need to be stressed about all that because nobody's exactly. doing anything. So. Being, um, it's like what you, you know, it's like what you feel in my case, temporarily, when you get married, you think, thank God, I'm not going, wait a minute, is he, is he, is he single? Um, uh, you know, you get, you get a temporary break from the FOMO, don't you? And, uh, and also there is, I mean, I certainly felt a certain amount of, in the height of the pandemic sort of solidarity it wasn't just, yeah, well, fuck you, I'm out. You know, I haven't got it either. But it was kind of like, right, well, we're all here. Um, yeah. And also, I've never been that ambitious. That makes me sound like I'm a brilliant person. I I'm, I wish I'd been more ambitious. I'm probably a little bit lazy. Oh, really? Well, that, that's, I mean, it seems in a way to, to contradict the, the, I wanted to be on stage. I decided I just wanted to get attention and entertain people. It does contradict that, doesn't it, Andre? But I think what it is, probably, you know, it's more therapy. Can't get more North London than that. Uh, <laughs> it was probably therapy that rid me of the kind of ambitious hunger, because I think it was the hunger rather than the ambition. Ambition is a perfectly valid, you know, I'm absolutely determined that I will be I will have an Oscar before I'm 40 or whatever pe whatever form people's ambition takes. Um, but it was never, I think I just wanted people to know who I was and like me. And then yeah. once that had happened a bit, um, I was like, oh. And then, oh, that, that's, that hunger seems to be sated. So, I mean, to go back in that case to the... Uh... To the to the career, as it were, I feel like if I'm if I'm jumping from uh, what we were talking about in terms of those early roles and Dame Edna to the fast show, I'm probably missing out vast ways. But were, were there major bits in there, or was that? The yeah, next? I am. Um, the first time, I think I was 27, so I'd been at it for six years by then, or at it. You know, I'd been in the business, mm. and after many many auditions where you had to improvise I got quite a big part in a really really as it turned out good film called Honest Decent and True made by Les Blair mm. and he was the sort of counterpart they were mates they had the same style of working to Mike Lee and it was a film about advertising and it was Aid Edmondson who was quite well known by then me an unknown Richard E Grant and I don't think anybody else oh Gary Oldman was in it um, nobody yeah. else, just Gary. And nobody else big. Um, Gary Oldman had a very little part, actually. Um, no, wait a minute. I think I might have got that wrong. Did Gary have a part in it? Yes, anyway. Yes, Gary did. Um, and it was an improvised film, and it was probably, I mean, listen, I don't say this with any confidence that I had then, but I, it was the first time I realised that my, if I may, intelligence and natural wit could pay off because it was improvised around he knew what he loosely wanted mm. from this ad agency that we were representing and I remember thinking oh now I feel like I'm you know not only has he recognized that talent in me but I'm now able to deploy it so that felt like 
quite a milestone. And uh, yeah, I was 27. Um, but then I think that was that was a big deal for me. Not that it changed much of my life. And then, guess, um, sorry, just on the, on the, on that. They said that so the process was the Mike Lee type process is where yeah, exactly kind so, of, yeah. there's a kind of direction of where the story needs to be start from and go to, but in between you're trying to naturally converse. Yeah. And, and, and some actors can't bear it, but it felt like an absolute, it felt, I thought this is what, where I live. I never stop talking. I'm quite intelligent and I'm quite witty. So I could, I could do this. There wasn't any kind of, but why, 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 why would I be asking him that? Um, so that's so a it felt like a very, real and natural place for me and then after that really what happened is I would sort of you know be everywhere and meet lots of people and then one day someone said to me if you could write like you talk you'd be very successful because you're very funny a much much older writer actually not nothing to do with show business I mean he was a book writer and then I did so I, I started getting more and more in things that were being done, even if they were dramas, I'd be, in those days, the funny maid or the funny receptionist or the funny mate of the main girl, because I was never going to be, because I didn't look like Greta Skaki, which was very painful for me at the time, but, you know, she was my contemporary. Everybody looked like Joanne Wally, Greta Skaki, you know, they were gorgeous and thin, and I wasn't either of them. So in those days, I was never going to get the lead girl, but I would always get the the funny one. And and then I met Alexi Sale and he said, why don't you come and work with me and because you're funny and and then um and we worked together a lot and I'm never and then I I, I what happened and it was always men in those days, late eighties. Do I mean the late eighties? Yeah, mid to late eighties, men like Harry Enfield, Lenny Henry, um John Cantor, who I ended up writing Posh Nosh with, funny men would go, would meet me on dramas or whatever and go, oh, you're funny, come and work with me. Okay. Uh, and although I would invariably be, and it used to say that in those days, mum in sketch or girl in sketch, I, they, you know, I, would, I was allowed to be funny at times. And then I fell in with sort of comedy types. And then I met Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Hickson and then, well, the rest is not history, perhaps in the history books, but in comedy history. And so, then they went, oh, we're going to do our own show. Why don't you come and work with us and write your own stuff? And then is when I felt, actually, it was first with Alexi. But with Paul and Charlie, I felt a mixture of terror, but also kind of, yes, this, it's now clicked. And now so, I, this is where I want to be. It wasn't that I felt, I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, I've arrived, sister. I belong here. But I felt... This is where I want to be. This feels like the rightest anything's felt. And this is where I want to stay. So I'm going to, then I started working hard because the rest of the time I was a bit of a mucker about her. It sounds like it, it sounds like the process of the sketches suited you. I mean, so at that point, just to, to rewind slightly, Harry Enfield was um, massive in the late 80s. 13 million people. Yeah. Harry shows. And releasing. DVD. The, not, it wasn't DVD, the videos, the box set of his TV shows would sell out before the TV show had gone on air. Because I remember saying, why, why are you selling the video before the thing's been on the telly? And they went, oh, because they'll buy it. They'll buy it and then they'll watch it on the telly. Harry was huge. 
and and deservedly so it was it was oh yeah exciting really exciting new stuff at the time and so Paul Whitehouse and uh Charlie Hickson were working were writing for him and working Paul Whitehouse was fairly well known face from those sketches yeah but he was very much um Harry's sidekick I mean it was called the Harry Enfield show yeah um Uh, yeah and and so I remember as a as a, a teenager um, when the the first show first came out. I don't was, think there's um, any call for you to say how uh, young you were. Thank you, Andre. You can just well, say, I remember when the first show came out. Okay, I'll, we'll, we'll cut that. I remember clearly. I'm teasing. Was I don't just, care. A couple of years ago when the first show came yeah. out. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not pretending it was. Uh, yeah. Okay. Go on. When I was around 35 and the first show came out. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, God, you are old. It was clear. I mean, it, it was. I remember thinking it, Paul Whitehouse was the recognisable face, and it was. Oh, that's interesting. Harry Enfield's psychic has got a show, but it very quickly surpassed that for what it was. Didn't surpass Harry Enfield, but but it became its own thing. It became uh, his own his own entity. Yeah. And it, it, how? So you got involved. You were invited by them to. Yeah, to yeah, absolutely. In, essentially, they, they, presumably they. My career been, is mainly thanks to men. Unfortunately, but I think I'm afraid a lot of women my age would say that, whatever their industry. Well, absolutely. That's that's the 80s and the years previous, isn't Great it? So. And the 90s and the 2000s, presumably. Um, and hopefully, the next decade might be slightly different. How how was how did they approach you, and how did you? Um, I knew uh, them. Uh, Charlie is married to someone that I was at school with although she much younger than me, well, a bit younger than me, so we weren't friends in that way, but I knew his wife. But really it was that I were, I got to know and really got on with Charlie and Paul when I was working with Harry, because we were, you know, everyone was around the whole time. We were all hanging out the whole time. And they just went, you know, you're funny, come and work with us. And it wasn't like, I mean, I wasn't leaving Harry because I was only doing like odd sketches with Harry. But, um, but it was very casual. But I think Paul and Charlie thought I was funny and they thought I could do it. But I mean, we were talking about this the other day. Um, There's no way now, if somebody was putting a sketch show together that they'd be A, allowed to sort of employ people like that just on Paul and Charlie's um, say so, but also that none of us were famous apart from Paul. Mm. Um, Now they'd be looking for names for everybody. so, you know, the BBC in those days was, at, I mean, they were definitely the golden years of the BBC because it was a, it was an absolute hotbed of talent and talented producers and people that would go, well, we trust these guys, we've worked with them, let's see what they do. Um, instead of the whole kind of, you know, are we on the front of the Radio Times? You know, have we beaten whatever's on the other channel? The kind of, you know... But then we've got the Tories to thank for fucking up the BBC, haven't we? <laughs> a, 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 Pardon my French. Well, yeah. Well, uh, should we come on to the Tories in a bit? Because uh, you, you mentioned before the um, the way the coronavirus has been handled. It'd be interesting to, to chat about some of that. And as we speak, it's the week where the school meals is back on the um, the news agenda as well. So um, politically, it's a, it's a lively time. But just before we move on from Fast Show, what what was the, the, the writing like were you writing separately and then we'd all write separately we'd all write separately and then we'd have a kind of big meeting and sort of again you know gladiatorial not best suited to as it turned out after one series the one woman um 
because of course the guys would be going, oh, that's hilarious, you know. And then I'd go, what about if a woman does this? And they'd be like, uh, why, why is that? Why is that funny? Um, so it was a baptism of fire, but it was also, I mean, it was blokey and it was gladiatorial, um, which is not best suited, certainly to sort of insecure me as I was then. Um, I'm not saying I'm not insecure now, but, you know, I was very kind of, oh, my God, what if they don't like me? What if, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe this sketch isn't funny. It was very hard to sort of fight my corner. Um, but, yeah, we'd all write our own stuff and then present it. And and Paul and Charlie were very egalitarian and fair. And I think it was, it you know, they, everybody wanted the show to be good and tried their best. And, you know, looking back, I don't think we realised, like with a lot of things, what a kind of furtive and fertile, no, not furtive, what a fertile ground it was. Um, it wasn't furtive. I don't know where I came up with that. In my, my brain was going furtive, but then my mouth was going, no, you mean fertile. Um, so, yeah, we didn't have the kind of pressures of, oh, the BBC are saying they'll pull it if this, or, you know, mm. we were just very, very lucky and all mad keen to, to do well. But I think it hit a perfect time in all six of us, our lives, you know, that we, we, we liked working together and we wanted to do well. And I think something in us made us all know that we had an opportunity here and not to kind of muck it up. Yeah. Um, because, you know... A lot of performers, especially comedians, can be quite self-sabotaging, um, and uh, which I think is a feature of sort of, not all performers, but there is an element of, hey, you know, the sort of the gambler, why don't I see if I can, you know, mm. put too much money on this and, oh, then I'll be broke, then I won't be able to do it. Um, I think it was just sort of, you know, kismet. You know, it was a bit of alchemy, a bit of just sort of... Um... But it was it was also daring, wasn't it? I mean, the, the, the kind of... What, the the short the very very short sketch thing that it kind of created or popularized is 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 was definitely different at the time but then there's other bits so i rewatched the first couple of episodes yesterday and then the, there's the one where um paul says there's a hole over there at the end of the road and no my luck i'll fall in it and no then... that's sublime isn't it unlucky alf yes because he's set up i mean that's just sublime you see that hole, knowing my luck, I'll probably fall in it. And then he does a very long, exquisitely timed, com not even a comedy walk, just does a walk. And you think, well, obviously, they're going to do something different. And then he falls in the hole. Uh, no, sublime. But that's not a sketch I'm in, Andre. So, uh... <laughs> well, let's talk about those in that case. I mean, the, the, the two most famous um, characters that spring to mind um, is the, obviously, does my bum look big in this? Oh yeah, a huge catchphrase and, and something you embrace. It is, uh, excuse me, Paul and Charlie acknowledge this. It's the best-known catchphrase from the Fast Show. Oh, is that right? Ufficialmente. <laughs> well, I mean, and it, it was it worked. It was great. And the other one was um, the um, South African makeup lady. I was actually I was going to say the girl that men can't hear or very well, very prescient, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Uh, somebody uh, mentioned it the other day when some football pundits, when a woman on it sort of went, yeah, because actually it was this and the, the, you know, I don't even know anything about football, but the striker did this and they went, oh yeah, that's quite good. Like, you know, um, yes, that sketch came out of 
being of working on the far show. Uh, because they, most of them, it was at times being like at a boys, you know, boarding school. They would ignore me mm. and it was all very reminiscent. I've got two older brothers of sort of being a little person around my two older brothers. Um, so I wouldn't say there was a huge amount of solidarity. Uh, and that that sketch, definitely, that character definitely came out of that. It also yeah. came out, I went to buy some paint with a young student male who was probably, I don't know, 10 years younger than me, who was working for me, thank you very much, but we went to buy the paint together. And I said, I want a kind of bluey thing, blah, blah, blah. And I had a book on me and I said, I want this. Can you, you know, recreate that? But I don't want it to be gloss. I want it to be matte. So I did the whole thing. And the guy literally went, that all right, mate. Just <laughs> and, and I went, no, you see, he hasn't spoken. And he went, is that what you want, mate? And I went, still, again, he hasn't spoken. I've spoken. And he went, is that what you want, mate? I mean, he wasn't having it. He only spoke to the guy. And, and I think there isn't a woman alive who won't be able to tell you a story like that. Yeah, and, and not just from 25 years ago, presumably. Oh, no. I mean, I'm interested in, because obviously they were good friends of yours in the team, Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Hickson and and, um, and the others in the, in the core Fast Show team. And you have talked about some of this stuff first and that character in particular how do how do you how do, do you have you talked to them about it directly yes um there's a radio four show i don't think they do it anymore called chain reaction oh, yeah. where um a well-known person talks to someone they know well who is also well known and then you pass the baton on so i uh david tennant did richard wilson richard wilson did me and i did paul whitehouse mm -hmm. as it were not in the porn film sense, but, um, and on it, Paul sort of, we talked about the fast show and we're in front of a live studio audience. And then Paul suddenly went, yeah, look, it, let's face it. You never got a fair shake. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, at the time I used to kind of go, this isn't fair and blah, blah, blah. And then everyone would be a bit sort of, oh, shut up, Harry, which is what people call me. Um, not quite, oh, shut up. And I think now looking back, they, they think that I probably didn't get a fair crack at the whip. But then, you know, uh, you could also say maybe I, I don't know. I would say I didn't get, yeah, but yeah, well, I mean, I'm still very close to Paul and Charlie. And it's not that I'm not close to the others, it's just that Paul, you know, we're all North Londoners and we all see each other and we're very good friends. And yeah, I mean, the friendship yeah. maintained. So, but yeah, I don't, I don't spend my time with them going, and another thing. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's nice to hear. And I suppose that's the reason I was curious is because we all look back on things and way we, ways we've behaved and regret. And hopefully most of us look back and think, oh, I wouldn't have treated that situation like that now. And, and well, that's when you write and... a letter, Andre. It's always good. Even if it's 20 years on, you write a letter. I, always, I got an email from someone who I literally knew, what is it now, probably 25, bit more, probably 30 years ago. And I just got an email and he said, um, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I think when we knew each other, he wasn't a boyfriend. He was actually the mate of a boyfriend. And uh, he just said, I think I was a bit of a C word. And I'd just like to say, um, I apologize. And I thought, that's really nice, actually. I'd never thought of him as that. He was a bit of a plonker, but um, I did think, yeah, it's always worth saying, 
I want you to know yeah. that I know I behaved badly. God, I hope he's all right. He's fine. He's very, very successful. Okay, fine. So, so that's even better. What I mean, it wasn't a letter from someone going, I'm now in prison and I'd like to make amends for all my uh, bad behaviour. No, he was, um, he's a very successful writer. I just thought, I just thought it was quite sweet. That's yeah. Quite... How did the um, fast show end? Was it simply BBC said? Probably too soon. Done. Paul admits that now. It was Paul went, oh, we don't want to be those guys that people go, oh, they've trotted out tired old material and here they are churning the same piece out in a different costume. But he now says we went too soon. We went one series too soon. But, you know, you never know when to leave the party. It certainly wasn't us. It was Paul that decided to. I think Paul and Charlie went, we better sort of leave the party now. Um, and you did revisit it later. Yeah, we did revisit it a couple of times. Um, I think we, we had such a good time. We did a recent thing uh, for UK TV Gold, a reunion, and did some new sketches and stuff. And we all went, oh, let's do a live show. So I think, you know, if we could, we, the um, Simon, Mark, John, Paul, Charlie and me would do a... Uh, We'd do a live show. Probably not a tour, though. We're a little bit old for that. I mean, look, if the Rolling Stones are still at it in there, mm -hmm. what are they, late 70s and 80s? I think we can be allowed a little grace. Um, but, okay. yeah, we, you know, we all get on and we all find each other funny and we like working with each other and we all admire each other, I suppose. That's that's important. That's great. So after that, it must have, there must have been a moment where it's like, oh, my God, I've achieved this success, but now I'm dangling it's never andre you know very well i mean i dare say if you are a scientist and right now you'll be looking if you're the guy who goes or and i mean guy in but in both gender sense he goes wait a minute i think i found the cure for covid um but there's in show business there's never a kind of you think yeah is this the moment i've made it and you go yes i've made this much money i'm on the cover of the radio times and then the next week people go sorry which one's she um, particularly with women. So unless you're a plonker, I don't think there's ever a moment in which you go, I've cracked it. But did you have, um, did you have projects um, ready for that moment or was there a, a, a moment? Yeah, I had, um, I was aware that things had changed dramatically for me in the sense that I would, everybody wanted to meet me if I had an idea. You know, there was no kind of, oh, they're saying they're not looking for that at the moment. You'd suddenly go, haven't I tried to meet these people before? And they were a bit, mm, and now they're going, yeah, they'd love to, uh, they'd love to talk to you about. So yeah, it was probably in that uh, climate that I was able to do um, Posh Nosh, which I have to say, much as I love the fast show, I have never loved writing or working or shooting anything as much as I loved shooting Posh Nosh. I have the time of my life. And for those of you who don't know it, it's a, and you can get it on YouTube, it's a spoof cookery show, which is a little bit Fanny Craddock, a little bit Delia, and just a little bit of the absolute nonsense that all that kind of, just get some fresh Bataga, it's only 75 pounds an ounce, and some chanterelle, anything you've got in the fridge, you know, some, you know, rare duck egg, and you're thinking, what? <laughs> um, you know, the snobbery of fine dining and yes and i co-wrote that with john Cantor, and uh and it was richard e grant and me and we just uh, i mean i had the time of my life doing that and not because i mean i think of course there was a lot in it 
because I've written it, co-written it. But Richard and I really loved working together and he loved, he was, it, my character's husband was very obviously gay, but not, she was pretending he was straight. Um, and she was doing a lot of how happy they were. And um, just, there was many, many layers and it was just sublime to shoot and to write. And I loved it. I just the, the subject itself and the, the set, it must've just been exciting and fun to be able to play with that. Oh God, yeah. And when you, no, what would you say? Um, by all means, use stock cubes if you have low self-esteem. Um, I everything we did, we took everything to the furthest possible. One of my favorite lines that I still makes me laugh is um, uh, he would do the wines and she would do the cooking. And he would say, now, uh, here's a whatever it was, Chateau something or other. And then an Aston, you know, the, the stuff that goes under the screen, the writing would say something like, 74 pounds a bottle and he said now look don't be put off by the price because sometimes the cheap ones are quite nice <laughs> so the idea being they were such snobs that 74 pounds a bottle was nothing and then things like whiskey you could only get on one day in the summer because the ferry would <laughs> look i'm laughing at my own stuff but it was bloody funny <laughs> have you thought about revisiting that because i mean it's still as as relevant oh god today. yeah we wanted to many times i just it's hard revisiting things. I think you probably, look, you know, Madonna's probably one of the biggest recording artists in the world, but I think the moment you start revisiting things when in your sort mm. of, you know, in your autumn years, people go, oh God, um, even, I mean, maybe somebody else could do it. I don't know, but, but man, must, we loved it. Um, there must we, be times when you see the Bake Off, for example, and think, oh my God, we should put ourselves in that. Don't, I mean, I'm afraid I'm one of those people who goes, I've worked in television for 40 years now, and you're now telling me that one of the best and biggest shows in the world is watching people make cakes. This, there's something wrong there. I, you know, come round to my house and watch me make a cake. I promise you I'll cock it up. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, and someone said to me, a friend of mine who is a bloody Oxbridge academic said, oh, but it's the Jeopardy. And I went, what's the Jeopardy? It's a cake. <laughs> I don't mind watching three scientists in the last final stages of curing cancer, that I mean, like, it's a cake. Who cares? Oh, anyway. And the, the jeopardy is that I don't want to hate mail. The jeopardy is that I'm watching somebody very nervous who's not happy to be in front of a camera. It's the whole way that television's changed. We've got to see people sort of feeling unhappy, nervous, and and on their mettle, and you just think, no. I want to see people whose job it is to entertain me. I don't want to see real people going on. I've tried a meringue. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with snobbery. It's nothing. To, it's to do with why suddenly has become, it's all a version of, you know, feeding Christians to the lions, isn't it? It's all gladiators. Um, and I don't know why television, I know why television's gone like this, because it's cheap. I guess it's around this time that when did you your first book came out because you moved into two years ago exactly now where are we october yeah exactly now it came out 22 years ago so that that must have been after the fast show or no during we were doing that we were still doing the fast show yeah does my bum look big in this the diary of an insecure woman came out while yeah the fast show was very much on telly 
Wow. But and I can assure you the sales were not because we were on telly, because I don't think a lot of people that bought the book made even made the connection. Mm. Um, and the sales were huge. They were very big. It was an international bestseller, I don't mind saying. <laughs> 13 countries it was a bestseller. And in Britain, it was a massive bestseller in Britain. And that was a, ma a huge moment for me, because while I was writing it, I remember thinking, no, people, if anybody buys this at all, they're going to think I'm completely bonkers. Um, and it just hit a nerve. It, well, it came out at the same time as Bridget Jones's diary. And I think suddenly there was this kind of, well, women with careers and education in their 30s. Because, of course, our mother's generation, if you weren't married by the time you were 30, then you were absolutely on the shelf. It was too old, in inverted commas. So... So, you know, there was a zeitgeist uh, um, of that kind of novel. And we're not going to call it chick lit because it's pejorative. Um, uh, but yeah, that was a game changer. And I don't mean because it, I made a lot of money on it, but I mean because I thought, well, I am literally the only person that had that wrote that book and people love it and they write me letters and they identify and they think it's funny and thank you very much. And that's I'm quite very, funny, very pleased. But yeah, it's really quite something. And the the writing itself, did you enjoy? Because it must be very different doing that than Funnily trying enough, to come up with 30 seconds. I didn't enjoy it a lot, but I did like coming up with funny. I'd made, you know, I'd, I, I made I made her, obviously she was no longer a sketch, so she had to have a real job and a flat and and family and friends and stuff. So I made... I enjoyed all that, making up how I could sort of do the comic, what would be the most fruitful, you know, whether mm. if her parents were married or whether she had a stepmother and all these things. Um, and I enjoyed all that, but I'm not sure. Somebody asked me if I wanted to write a novel again the other day and I went, not sure I do. But then as I say, I'm a bit lazy. I had everything to play for then. I'd been given an advance, you know, I was having a baby. I was so pleased to finally be at the party and everyone know who I was, that I was going, I'm not letting go of this. And now I'm like, I don't care if people don't know who I am. I just don't care. And you say, you, you say you're lazy, but actually seeing that that was a moment where you could seize it and force yourself to write those 80,000 words, or whatever it was, or more. Yeah, it, I, think it was, I can't remember, yeah, but, but it, it certainly, but knowing not, that's the time to do it and, and really forcing yourself to and... Yeah, I was ambitious then. I was definitely ambitious. Well, I'd, I'd had a taste and uh, I wasn't about to let go. That was true for a long time. And now it's just different. I'm not saying, I mean, I love doing Two Doors Down that I do now, you know, the sitcom set in Glasgow, mm. Paisley. But um, I don't write it. I love, love, love the writing. I wish I did write it, but it wasn't my idea. And... Um, yeah, sometimes it is just nice for someone to go, here's a thing, you're doing it, rather than, do you want to do it? Do you want to push that boulder up the mountain? Do you want to, like, keep pushing it? And then when people go, oh, it's not really, you know, go, shut up. Um, yeah, so I've been, I've been at this game for quite a while now. Look, I look like I'm in a horror film now. <laughs> you do. It's kind of gradually darkened around you, and it's quite intense. That's, is, that's really quite intense. Well, that's because um, the um, clocks have gone back in it. Uh, that's true. That's, and the world's turning, presumably. The world's oh, still man. turning. Yeah. The world is just about turning, which brings us neatly on to politics. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say it, it probably does. I mean, it, the, the um, you mentioned before the state of um, the arts and everybody's in the same boat, etc. What's your take on how the government's approached emergency funding? Well, my take, I mean, it won't be a surprise to anybody listening to this that I'm, you know, a socialist and my kids went to the local schools and I'm a big believer in all that and, you know, not before somebody decides to write me that I'm not a champagne socialist. I do like a glass of champagne, but my children went to the local state schools. I didn't do any Jerry, you know, Monry. I just threw myself in. I ran the PTA at my kid's school, Ashmount, and then I ran it at their secondary school, Highgate Woods, which was by no means the sort of, you know, middle-class school schools of choice. And I believe in community and I'm a very sort of active member of my community. Um, so obviously I, well, it is pretty clear I wouldn't have voted for this government, but I was saying to someone the other day, I would happily have Thatcher back over this crew because what I don't understand is it's kind of like the mafia. Now the mafia don't pretend they're not criminals. I mean, obviously they put their funds through legitimate, mm. in inverted commas, businesses, but they're not going, no, 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 I, I absolutely, I'm a postman, that's all I do. These guys are so obviously corrupt and they don't seem to care that anybody knows. They go, yeah, I'll be giving that um, contract to the uh, woman who's never, ever had anything to do with PPE or science in any way. And that's fine. And what I don't understand is if I knew how to storm the palace, I'd be doing it. Um, because I'm just going, what I do not understand how they are able to be this openly corrupt I mean, the schools thing, obviously that's terrible, but that you could just say, well, it's a budget thing. Um, whereas the awarding of contracts and the cocking up the track and trace and all of that, you're going, but wait a minute, they're actually openly incompetent. I mean, what other job in the world could you go, yeah, I kind of blew that 117 billion. I just kind of, yeah, I mean, that was a, I, I gave it to Andre and Andre turned out not to know what to do with it, but never mind. And I know it's your money. There's no other job in the world that people wouldn't be going, I'm sorry, you're out. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, I think even they must know that they will never get another term. And of course, all the wretched people that voted Brexit thinking it was going to mean, you know, the red wall that they talk about and all those people who've never voted Tory in their lives thinking, well, it means I'm going to get a train station back and all that. You're just going, no, these guys are literally in it to line their pockets and then go, we don't really care. It was because I think part of the problem is none of them are believable career politicians. You don't believe any of these guys are doing it for life. You just think they're kind of going, then I'll go and work for, oh, I'll have a consultancy here, or I might go and mm -hmm. I might go and live there. You just, it, it's sort of terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying because, I mean, what can we do other than sort of, you know, sign petitions and and pray for Marcus Rashford to rule the world you, because the fact that they're not even embarrassed that a 22 year old football footballer mm. you know a limited education is able to galvanize the country because they don't care they it is clear they don't care they're not even pretending they care it's it i mean uh, you obviously... can tell i feel quite uh, passionate about this no you know yeah yeah exactly i have very very clear views about it i mean boris johnson when when he finally got his dream job of being the prime minister and when he got his flip of a coin decision of Brexit, 
um, obviously came in thinking, oh, well, it's great. Um, British industry is going to be amazing because the Brits are great and we'll just open things up and we'll let the markets do it. And, he, and he's found himself in this situation, which obviously no leader wants to find themselves in. But I can't imagine that any of them really wanted to be flinging out contracts to Serco or to, to whoever all of the first half of this year. But then they did because they didn't know another approach to it or they, they couldn't conceive that there was another way of doing it. It seems oh, I seems- think they absolutely planned all along to give their cohort yeah, including themselves. I mean, the very fact that what's that vile, vile, they're all vile, but the particularly the Toff, the one with three names, um, the one who was lying oh, down. Yes. The fact that he's a director of one of the companies that have been awarded, you're literally thinking it's like the mafia. They're just going, we don't even care that you know. They're not going, oh, well, I'm not really a director. Um, I'm only, I'm a silent partner. I think they you know, they're just going, yeah, we're here to line our pockets, ruin it for the rest of you. And I mean, the very fact that the, that a number of MPs are then, like today, there's been a tweet with someone going, I believe two boiled eggs cost 23p. You know, one of the a Tory MP who voted not to mm. um, feed kids in the half term and the winter and, and did a kind of pompous thing about what it cost to boil an egg uh, and have a slice of wholemeal toast and a bit of butter. And you just literally think, so you're not even pretending that this was a terrible, this was a very hard decision. We made it for budgetary reasons. Mm. We understand there's some terrible uh, um, deprived kids out there. No, we're just, now we're going to take the piss. Um, I mean, just, oh, I was like, now I'm going to, ah. Um, the only thing I can do is keep supporting Labour because I do think Keir Starmer's doing a good job and I do think he'll be the next Prime Minister and we just have to hope that, even, you know, the, the only good thing that is good about, the one thing that we can thank COVID for is it really exposed this government in a way that nothing else would have done. It's really super exposed them. Um, and uh, also, I don't, think uh i think it's pretty clear boris johnson doesn't really want to do this job and then he's like doing it in a kind of not like more work it's like i was at school i want to be at school because i want to be i want everyone to notice who i am but i don't want to do any of the work can you see yourself becoming more involved in politics have you stood no i do as much as i I'm, as I say, I'm a very active member of my community. I volunteer in the local park, Elthorne Park. Top yeah, of so Hall. you're in Crouch End. Yeah. Yes. And um, I do, you know, I signed up to be an NHS volunteer when the pandemic started. And I do as much and I do what I can for the Labour Party, not as a sleb, but, you know, and I think community is how you make people not and I'm but I really I don't want to be in the council because I don't want to help I don't want to hear about I mean of course I care about dog poo but I don't want to do a surgery and have to listen to three people going now the dog poo in my street I'm like um so yes I'm not interested in taking it further thank you very much yeah well are you sure I'm absolutely not what I'm going to do next um, the uh, the other side of 
another side, sorry, of what the government's done is reacting to for businesses and your industry in particular. Um, Haven't they is, done well there? Because it turns out um, the arts don't really bring in much money uh, at all. Uh, oh, no, wait a minute. That's not right. We do. But we're all lefties. So um, ow, I've just given myself really bad cramp. It's stopped. It's gone away. Um, that was that. Oh, we can keep that bit in. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think for the listener, I, honestly, I think... In, for the listener, Arabella's now sat in the dark and suddenly <laughs> yelped in surprise. I can't see what's happening. I I um I gave myself cramp. Um, it's just I think I think if it had been just the opera that was in trouble, they'd have been fine. Maybe just Glyndebourne, they'd have been okay. I mean, it's it's just it's again how unbelievably short-sighted they are. They're not going. Oh, I know they're all lefties, but look at the revenue they bring in. Uh, they're just going. Oh, well, you know why? Why nobody needs to? Nobody needs to worry about them. Um, yes, but uh, the thing that made me the, the, you've got to love this country. Um, I know he's not even a drinker, but the immediately Rishi Sunak's pub barring him for life <laughs> when he voted. You thought, yeah, there you go. There's the people uh, at work. So um, yeah, they've been terrible with our industry. I mean, I was on. I was in the middle of doing a tour when the pandemic, which I'd, I'd done a sellout run at Edinburgh mm -hmm. uh, of my first ever solo show uh, called Does My Mum Loom Big In This? I see. You see what I've done there? Mm -hmm. And um, I had a very tricky relationship with my very flamboyant, posh, I think pretty safe to say crazy mum who didn't have a maternal bone in her body. I mean, she literally thought it was not her job. It, mm. You know, she'd had a lot of children, but she just, any of the kind of actual workaday stuff of being a mother, I just think she thought, she would literally go, why are you asking me? And you go, well, cause you're the mum. And she'd be like, well, it's got nothing to do with me. And um, why am I saying that? Oh, cause the show is about my relationship with my mother. And it's also about me as a mother. Uh, because I found out that it's not as easy as I thought it was, particularly when I became a single mother about 10 years ago. Although I would say that I was a single mother when I was married um, uh, because I was doing it all on my own. And uh, yeah, so I was a third of the way into the UK tour of that, of the Edinburgh show and um, the pandemic hit. And I just remember thinking theatres are going to be in real, real trouble. And provincial theatres, you know, it's going to be the end for some people. And that will, I mean, they, this country, this government is, I would say, I think it's safe to say single-handedly ruining this country. And it will take probably many, many years to get things back. Because if, if, I don't know, a town in, I'm just picking anywhere, Devon, loses its theatre, that's going to have a massive impact on so many things. Um, not because we've all got to see, you know, I don't know, a touring production of the importance of being earnest, but because of everything else uh, regional theatres do. It's terrible. We're going to move on for another subject because I'm going to kill myself at the end of this interview. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I won't do that's, that. That's how most of my interviews end. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Great date. <laughs> it's a great date. I like to kill myself at the end of a date. Um, yeah, it's gone really well. So have you have you rescheduled the shows or are they? The show's supposed to be starting again next February, but your guess is as yeah. good as mine. I mean, the the, the tour's supposed to start. Yeah. I mean, 
they have because there's only seven of us in the show we are they have managed to re to schedule enough covid safety so i'm about to do the christmas special of two doors down right in glasgow but we're shooting that on location with a kind of closed set and all yeah. that because it's set in a highland lodge you won't be surprised to hear um and and then we're supposed to be doing series five of that next March. But apparently TV is a lot, and films are easier to do than theatre, because, of course, in theatre, you've got, you're selling to, I don't know, 50 strangers mm. plus. Yeah. Uh, whereas on a film set or a TV set, you go, this is who's going to be here. Everyone's wearing a mask. We've tested everybody. But, yeah, it's, um, it's going to be difficult for theatre. But I hope to do that show again, yeah. I was practicing it today, this on my fast walk, looking like a lunatic in the street, going, thing is right, thing is I'm looking that. And thought, if people look at me, I look bonkers, but that's okay. So is, it, is that gonna be your first filming since yeah. everything happened? Wow. Yeah. And is it a it's a two doors down Christmas special? It's in a Highland Lodge. Is it a kind of traditional um what's the word? Um log cabin. Um no, I'm thinking it's a sick an episode where you make it a contained uh it's a one set yeah yes i think there'll be a few shots and maybe the odd shot out in the highlands as it were but everything will be kind of well because you know it's mm. always that's how those sitcoms work isn't it you're always in a familiar room with people going no i think you've had enough no could you pass the nuts <laughs> um you know yes uh i that's what it but i've just read the script literally this morning it was very very funny excellent me me, me being my long-suffering uh, self, which is so unlike me in real life, but uh, very like me in the show. What about the rest of the time? Have you managed to get some writing done or have you had a nice and lazy well, You know, I've done, well, uh, that's why I'm a bit more depressed, well, with everything going on with this lockdown, but I spent that kind of thing of, oh, nobody can work. Nobody's allowed to work. Right. I'm just going to be in the garden all day long in this fantastic weather, not feeling guilty because I've definitely, from my Scottish parents, I have definitely inherited the work ethic, if nothing else. The work ethic and the self-loathing. And uh, so as a kind of, oh, you're not writing a book. Well, you're a bit lazy then. Um, but there we were in lockdown going, hello, I can do what I like now because I'm not supposed to be doing anything. So I spent an inordinate amount of time in the garden and I really, really loved it. So I've become, I was always quite an, a keen amateur gardener, but I got more sort of obsessed with it. Um, oh, yeah, and grew lucky. quite a lot of vegetables. Some very nice tomatoes, I don't mind saying. Excellent. I was going to say, is there anything else you want to plug? But are you selling tomatoes on the hedge? No, or? I'm not selling. Uh, minor celebrities, tomatoes. Uh, <laughs> just ask Paul Newman. <laughs> My minor celebrities, uh, tomato sauce. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, not doing any of that but I have shared quite a lot of my tomatoes. Well, good. Well, um, anything else you want to plug whilst we're on here or? Can't think. Um, no, my live show, I hope people will come and see that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they tickets available? Say, I, do you know what I'm gonna plug? I love the ham and high. I have loved the ham and high since I was a teenager. I absolutely love the ham and high. And uh, yeah, so I've always read it and I've always loved it. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Arabella Weir, it was a pleasure even before that last bit of, <laughs> bit of plugging for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was really lovely. Thank you very much, Andre. I very much enjoyed our chat and often these are a chore, but it wasn't.
So thanks to Arabella for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit subscribe and don't forget to tell your family and friends to subscribe too.